And that music can only mean one thing. The Delaware Valley Journal is on the air. The official podcast of DelawareValleyJournal.com where you can sign up for our twice a week newsletters. If you're not getting them, you got to get them. Don't miss a single story. Also, follow us on Twitter at DV underscore journal and find us on Facebook as well. We're doing something fun right now in the holiday season. You'll see if you go to the website, our little Santa's helpers. Santa's helpers? Lil? I think there's a Lil, L-I-L apostrophe in there somewhere. The point is, uh, so many great young people across Bucks, Chester, Delaware, Montgomery counties are doing things to make this holiday season a little brighter. And so we're honoring them by uh, highlighting them in our newsletter, on our website, on our Facebook page. And we're also going to give $1,000 to one of the charities that these kids are servicing. So tell us about the uh, charity that your kids or the kids in your church or temple or maybe scout troop, whatever, what they're doing, send us a photo and one of the charities will get a $1,000 donation from Delaware Valley Journal to try to say thank you for making our community just a little bit better place to be this holiday season. Just send your emails to News at insidesources.com. DVJ News, Delaware Valley Journal News at insidesources.com. Is that too hard of an email? I don't think it is. Anyway, a lot of action in the U.S. Senate race on the Republican and Democratic sides. Today, we're going to be talking to one of the Democrats and one of the most progressive candidates for the U.S. Senate in Pennsylvania this year. So we are delighted to welcome to the Delaware Valley Journal podcast, Representative Malcolm Kenyatta. Thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it. I am happy to do it. And thank you so much for having me. So uh, you're not a new person to politics, if I understand this. You've been around politics for a while. Is that a fair statement? It's 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 true. But, you know, I, I am young. And so because <laughs> I'm young, you get people say, oh, my God, did he just start? No, it right. takes a it takes a long time. <laughs> it takes a long time, as they say, to become an overnight success. <laughs> Well, the reason I raise that is because someone who knows politics, what would make you foolishly decide to run for the United States Senate and go out and do all the work and the driving and the rubber chicken and the, you know, not sleeping in your own bed? Why are you doing that? Well, I, I will tell you that the driving and the, and the meeting people is, is, is the best, is the best part of all of it. We have genuinely, this is a beautiful state. And I've gotten to get to every single corner of it. And it's beautiful. And you meet people who know what I know about what it means when government doesn't work in a real way. You know, and for folks who, you know, think about politics all the time, the way we we do, it's easy to get cynical and to only think about sort of the mechanics of how campaigns work, but to sometimes push aside why you do all the stuff that you're doing. And for me, I'm doing it because I grew up in a very working poor family. My dad was a social worker. My mom was a home health care aide. I lost them both by the time I was 27. Um, they didn't have great health care. And by the time I graduated high school, I had lived six different places. I went to one of those schools that we talk about that didn't have all the resources that they need to prepare me and you know the my other uh, classmates because it wasn't funded in a way that it deserved to be i live in a community where folks are working two and three jobs to get by and so what government does or doesn't do for me has never been hypothetical and it's never been 
you know, about a campaign, it's been real. And as I looked at this race and looked at all that was at stake, I felt like I had something to say and something to offer. And as you might guess, Michael, I thought I was the best Democrat to win in November. And so I decided to run. Uh, well, winning is a great, uh, great reason to run. But it's it's interesting to me. You mentioned the, the the education part and going to less than satisfactory schools. I went to one of the worst public schools in the state of South Carolina, which at the time had the lowest SAT scores in the country. So you can yeah. argue yeah. that I went to the worst public school in America from an academic standpoint. But it's, it's possible to argue that. I don't know that I did, but my point is it was terrible. And there was another great school in the same district. But the school district had a policy. You you had to attend the school for which you were zoned, period. Yeah. Because as the district superintendent told my mother, if we let Michael leave, why would anyone stay? And mm. so I'm curious about your experience with how poorly the state can run schools, the bureaucracy, government bureaucracy, et cetera. And yet you're an advocate of more resources and more authority for those schools. How, how does that happen? So here's, here's the reality. We know that right now, all across Pennsylvania, we're sending kids to schools where there is lead, asbestos, and mold in the building right now as we have this conversation. Um, I think that not only do I think we should have done it a long time ago, um, fix those schools, remediate those, those issues, but turns out we have $7.5 billion right now in Harrisburg that we could have used a long time ago to make to make the investments necessary to make sure our kids are in a safe environment. When I look at the fact that the share of education funding at the state and federal level, and you look over the last uh, you know, couple of decades here, that share has really atrophied and the governor has worked really hard to get that number up. But the reality is you have districts who have to do what Pittsburgh is thinking about doing right now and having to raise property taxes. And what does that do for folks who are particularly seniors who are on a fixed income? It makes it more and more difficult, puts more and more of a squeeze on them. And so when we invest in education in the way that we ought to, from the federal level on down, it ends up being a huge tax break for lower middle class and middle class families who can see a reduction in their property taxes. And so I say this all the time, doing the thing that is right also is the thing that is economically smart. And when I think about ensuring that every single one of our kids doesn't go to a school like you and I went to, doesn't go to a school like some that are operational right now where we know they're in physical conditions that are unsafe, but are actually in schools that are vibrant, that are factories of ideas, where we have educators and paraprofessionals and administrators that are well compensated and are put in a position where they can do what they wanna do best, which is educate our kids. When we create opportunities like that, what we also know that we're doing in the long run is creating more and more folks who might get up and start that next big enterprise, have that next great idea. But we also know that we're putting more people on the, on the tax rolls. We also know that we're ensuring that we're raising kids who are gonna be less likely to engage with the criminal justice system. So there are all these impacts of doing something as important as investing in our school. There are all these auxiliary impacts that go beyond that school just getting a few more dollars. 
Malcolm, to change the topic a little bit, uh, mm -hmm. this is Linda. Um, how would you balance your uh, priority that I know is close to your heart of healthcare reform with the many constituents here in southeastern Pennsylvania that work in healthcare for healthcare insurance companies or for pharmaceuticals? You know, all of those people, many of them, even if they work there, they understand that in, in America, we absolutely can and we must get to a place that if folks are sick or they have a procedure, that they can go see a good doctor and then leave that appointment and fill the darn prescription. That wasn't the reality. I mentioned briefly, you know, losing my parents. That wasn't our real reality. For me, my primary care physician for many years of my life was whoever the heck was on call at the emergency room. And when, we, when folks don't have access and it's not affordable to get healthcare, what happens when somebody shows up to the emergency room where care is a lot more expensive? Who pays for that? We all pay for that. And so when we're talking about lowering costs for folks, this is going to be key, not just for ensuring that more and more folks have access to the prescriptions that they need to take, have access to a good doctor, but it's a key to us having safe, healthy, and whole communities. Right now, we know that the number one reason folks go into bankruptcy in this country is medical debt. That is unconscionable to me, and it has created a real downstream problem for communities where folks are being hammered. And when somebody goes into bankruptcy and they lose their home, they lose their job, they lose their car, that those things aren't good for Pennsylvania families. And we know that healthcare has been a big part of the reason uh, folks have seen their costs, their costs rise. And that's why not only have I been a proponent for universal healthcare for everybody, doing things like allowing Medicare and Medicaid to negotiate drug prices, all those different things. But also it's why I've been so supportive of paid leave. We're in the middle still, um, hopefully not in the middle, but we are still dealing with a global pandemic. And it's ridiculous to me that we still haven't at the state or federal level um, figured out robust paid leave um, or done the different things that we know in this moment it has exposed a lot of the work that that we've that we've you know yet to do um, in this regard. Many people under socialized medicine, say up in Canada, come down to the U.S. to get procedures because they're like on a waiting list and they need a cancer treatment. How will this uh, not bring that here? Well, let me say this, and folks always point to Canada or everybody else, what I'm talking about is making our healthcare system stronger. And the question for folks is, what are you going to do as the next U.S. Senator? And the answer to that is, and I've said this multiple times in different interviews, any bill that comes to the floor that helps to make healthcare costs lower for Pennsylvania families, make prescription drugs more accessible for people, um, allow people to get the medical devices that they, that they need. These are things that I would vote for on the floor. And I think that we've seen a number of things that we need to do um, be included in the 
right now debated um, Build Back Better bill that would cap um, at $35, uh, the price of insulin that would expand benefits to allow folks to get hearing aids. And there are a lot of other things that we need to do to make sure Pennsylvanians um, and our population, which includes a number of seniors that folks can retire with a level of of dignity. And so you understand this, and I certainly understand it as a, as a legislator, you have to work with the folks who are elected there and you have to do everything you can with the composition of that body to get things done for people. The things that I just listed that are in the Build Back Better um, bill that's currently waiting for a vote in the Senate, does $35 for insulin or hearing um, is that all the issues we have in our healthcare system? No, not every issue, but I will tell you, it'll make life a lot darn better for so many people, including people all across Pennsylvania. And so not only would I vote for that bill if I was in the Senate, um, but I would be fighting as hard as hell to get it done as quickly as possible. And that's what Pennsylvanians can look forward to when I'm the next Senator. I will vote for and fight for any bill that makes its way to the floor that cuts costs and makes healthcare more accessible. So a majority of uh, Americans have told pollsters in multiple polls, ABC news, dead wall street journal, et cetera, that they believe that the additional spending will exacerbate inflation, which they say is their number one concern is inflation. What do you say to those folks who say maybe spending uh, a net $7 trillion uh, or voting to spend, I should say net $7 trillion in the next 10 years is the wrong thing right now due to inflation concerns. I would say to folks is that the Build Back Better plan is completely paid for. And actually it would help to deal with some of the inflationary concerns that we have. And I would also say to folks, the bipartisan um, infrastructure bill that just passed as well with billions of dollars going to our airports and our ports is also gonna deal with um, concerns that other folks have about the, the supply chain as well. But yeah, the CBO, the do, CBO has repeatedly said that the Build Back Better bill is not paid for. The CBO so, didn't say that. Yeah, they, actually, they they did. It's paid. They the didn't. first the first version, even with the uh, with ending the programs after a year or after five years, isn't paid for by between 150 and 300 billion dollars. And then if you continue the child tax credit, that's another 120 billion dollars a year after the first year. So oh, uh, so the CBO didn't didn't say that. And what we just saw was. Republicans in the Senate put forward a bill, which is not the language of the Build Back Better bill and said, mm -hmm. hey, score this. But the reality is a lot of the people who are jumping up and down about actually investing in Pennsylvania families who need help the most and all the things in the Build Back Better plan actually help make life better for Pennsylvania families. A lot of the folks who were saying that were the same people who were comfortable voting for a tax bill that gave trillions of dollars of tax cuts to the wealthiest people in this country, even though the CBO said that that was going to add hundreds of millions of dollars to the to the debt. And so I don't want to really paddle down the river of faux tears from people who say they care about the CBO when it when we are talking about a bill that can actually help people, but we're completely fine with passing a bill that prioritize the wealthiest Americans and the wealthiest Pennsylvanians over people who are working two and three 
jobs. And so those are crocodile tears. We know that passing the full Build Back Better agenda, which included the infrastructure bill, which also includes um, the bill that's right now in the Senate, that all of those measures are incredibly popular. They have been from when they're proposed, they're still popular now, and they're popular because they're actually connected to the things that people care about. If I or somebody in my family gets sick from this pandemic, do I have some paid leave? Or am I gonna be able to afford my childcare so I can actually go back to work? These are the basic meat and potatoes things that we need to do. And that's what I'm gonna be focused on. And that's what I would be focused on as the next US Senator. In uh, Philadelphia, a lot of people are really concerned about the huge increase in murders and other crime. It's it's like last time I checked, it was over 523 the other day. As am I, as am I. Um, <laughs> what would you do? I know that you have a criminal justice reform as part of your platform, but how would you stop this crazy violence that we're undergoing here in the Philadelphia area? So I laid out a plan and folks can go go look at it um, just, I guess, two, two weeks ago or something like that. But a part of what I've said we've, we've had to do is I do think this is an emergency and we ought to treat this like an emergency. And I've called on the governor and our mayor to declare it emergency, not just to say that we, we said it, but to engage Pima in the way that we did around the ongoing opioid crisis. The governor declared a disaster declaration around the opioid crisis. And that actually opened up funds and allowed us to take a whole of government approach. Here is the reality. The gun violence that we're seeing is not a Philadelphia issue. It is a uniquely American issue. The amount of gun homicides and gun suicides that we have seen across the Commonwealth and across this country. And we have to deal with that. Part of the way we deal with it is to acknowledge the fact that we have far too many weapons of war on our street. And now you have a system by which folks can get access to ghost guns. Um, you know, all you need is a 3D printer um, and you're able to have, have a weapon. That has also been an incredible problem and has made it easier for folks um, to get their hands on, on a weapon. The final thing though we have to have to do in terms of calling that state of emergency, dealing with the guns that are on our street, and there are dozens and dozens of bills that have languished at the federal and state level that would deal with the amount of weapons that we have on our street. But then the final thing we have to deal with is actually deal with the root causes of this issue. And we know that jobs, quality education, which I, which I mentioned, housing, these are all things that we know reduce crime. We know that statistically, we know it. There was a program um, that was studied at the University of Pennsylvania, and I guess a month or so ago, they put out this study that the city did targeted, they did targeted investments in people just being able to do basic systems repairs on their home. And they did it on, on one block, didn't do it on the other block, right? And then went and saw, and they saw a measurable and statistically significant drop in gun violence from helping people invest in fixing up their homes. Now, for some people, they say, well, what the heck does that have to do with gun violence? But what we see is the quality of our communities has a direct connection 
to whether or not you see the type of desperation and the type of hopelessness and helplessness that leads people to say, I'm going to pick up a gun in the first place. But again, as we talk about gun homicides, we also need to talk about the fact um, that folks who die by suicide, um, that number in Pennsylvania has gone up as it has gone down in other states, that that also happens with guns at far too frequent, um, far too frequently. And that's something we need to deal with as well. Um, you had also mentioned in your platform supporting a $15 minimum wage, yep. but wouldn't that actually uh, work to uh, hinder people from hiring uh, in those very entry level jobs that you need to improve the communities? So let, let, me, let me say this, and I think this question and a couple of the other questions, it's always framed from, if we help people, doesn't that magically somehow also hurt them? No, giving people a dignified wage doesn't hurt them. And you've seen multiple municipalities and states who have raised their wages, and you haven't seen people flooding over to Pennsylvania to get a job in, instead. Every other state around us has raised the wage from 725, which is a starvation level wage. And so I completely reject the premise that helping people have a level of dignity with their work somehow hurts communities. Um, I reject the full premise of that question. I think a better question is why the heck in the year of our Lord 2021, has Pennsylvania stagnated on something as basic as paying folks at least $15 an hour? Why haven't we done things like pass the PRO Act, which will make it easier for folks to unionize and organize for better wages? And why have we continued to allow folks who are well-off and well-connected and the members of Congress who they fund and elect to continue to dictate the terms of what we do, as opposed to actually center for once the needs of working families. And that goes back to the first question of why I got in this for the, for, for the, in the beginning, because families like mine and communities like mine are routinely ignored and people don't seem to focus on the fact that when we lift up communities that have been hurting it lifts everybody up when we do that. State Representative Malcolm Kenyatta, candidate for United States Senate in the Democratic primary. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Delaware Thank Valley you. Journal. Thank you. I appreciate your time. it. Michael, Linda, a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to this edition of the Delaware Valley Journal on the air. If you enjoyed the podcast, please share it with your friends, post it on social media. And if you haven't, sign up for our twice a week newsletter so you don't miss any of the terrific content from DelawareValleyJournal.com. Thanks again. I'm your host, Michael Graham.